Welcome to Take the Lead Radio with Dr. Diane Hamilton, where she interviews some of the most successful leaders, entrepreneurs, authors, speakers, and other individuals who will inspire you to take the lead in your career and personal life. And now, here is Dr. Diane Hamilton. Welcome to Take the Lead Radio. This is Dr. Diane Hamilton, and I'm so glad you joined us today because we have Ed Frauenheim and Dr. Charles Red here. Ed is the co-author of Reinventing Masculinity. He's also the Senior Director of Content at Great Place to Work US. And Dr. Charles is a Fortune 500 executive, minister, professor, speaker, mentor, and transformational leader. So we're gonna talk about the differences we're seeing in uh, how we're reinventing masculinity. Also, uh, just how to get successful in the workplace. A lot of sales and mentorship discussions with Dr. Red. So we'll begin with uh, Ed, and I'm very excited to find out how we're reinventing masculinity. So stay tuned, and we'll be back right after this. Are you interested in finding out more about how HR professionals or leadership consultants can become certified to give the groundbreaking new Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The certification program will provide the ability to administer the assessment at reduced rates. Participants will learn how to interpret the results of the CCI, as well as how to deliver an innovation plan workshop designed to improve curiosity, engagement, innovation, and productivity. To find out more, go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Ed Frauenheim, who is a writer, speaker, who has focused on workplace technology and culture matters for more than 25 years. His writing has been featured in Fortune, Inc. in USA Today. He's co-authored four books, but his latest is Reinventing Masculinity, The Liberating Power of Compassion and Connection, who he co-wrote with Dr. Ed Adams, who is the past president of the American Psychological Association's uh, division devoted to the treatment of men and boys. In the book, Ed tells uh, the story of how we're we evolving from a cramped, unhealthy, outdated masculinity to one that frees us to build a better, more inclusive future. So nice to have you here, Ed. Thanks, Diane. Great to be here. Well, I was looking forward to this. It's, it's a unique um, topic for the show. I don't know that we address masculinity that much. Uh, and you know, there's always focus on women's issues and different things. And so I was, I was looking forward to this and I wanna get a backstory on you. I, I know, you know, you've gotten into a lot of areas where I'm interested in and culture and, you know, workplace technology and a lot of those issues are what I deal with as well. So, but what, what led you to this point that you've written all these books and, and reached this level of success? I would say that there's a combination of a personal story and a professional story, Diane. Um, this topic of masculinity is one that's um, been challenging for me as an individual, uh, growing, growing up as kind of a, a guy that didn't fit the, the, the mold exactly. Uh, you're supposed to be a, a strong man. I, I grew up skinny. Uh, you're supposed to be aggressive and, and dominant, and I lost my one fist fight in sixth grade. Uh, supposed to rise to the top of the corporate ladder. and. I actually have I managed one person for one day in my in my career as a professional. Um, <laughs> so there's a story behind that. But the, but the the gist is that it just it, it didn't really fit, and I was not successful, quote unquote, in these conventional terms. So I've written about this personally, and then as as this debate about like what's the new masculinity shaping up to be kind of has become more a little bit of a culture war in the pop culture in recent years with the Me Too movement, with this Gillette ad that that. Uh, got a lot of controversy. 
I was noticing that in the professional realm, there was a consensus building that actually what was it, what it takes to succeed as a man requires a different way of masculinity uh, showing up for, for us. And so it doesn't, it can't be the old standard of just being the command and control dominant barking boss. That's actually not going to help you thrive. It works. So I teamed up with this wonderful co-author who's really focused more on the personal development side as a psychologist, as you mentioned, and a leader of a men's group. And we sort of blended this sort of work world, professional world with the individual personal development world and, and then some sort of uh, public social trends as well. And the result is, is the book you see. Well, you know, there, the, there's so many things I'm writing feverishly as, you, <laughs> as you're saying this because there's so much to that that's so interesting that I want to come back uh, to, uh, as you were mentioning, um, successful in conventional terms it reminded me of when uh rich carlgaard's book uh, late bloomers he talks about how what we expect you to be and how you feel like you know if you haven't made it into harvard at a certain age and certain things that suddenly you're you haven't made it you know and a lot of people like, mm -hmm. a lot of great stories of people who made it later or you know or, or just aren't the traditional of what you'd expect and I, mm -hmm. I often talk about the Gillette ad in my marketing courses uh, because it, it is a fascinating look at, uh, for, well, I write about perception. So I can remember watching that ad when it first came out and it didn't have a big impact uh, to me as a female. I'm like, yeah, okay. And, and then all of these <laughs> men are free, were freaking out when I would ask them about it because they thought it was a personal attack on men in general. Uh, I, I thought that that was a really interesting thing. I want to get your insight on that Gillette ad uh, from a male perspective. What did you think of it? I thought it was great. Uh, you I know, showing that, um, that 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 <laughs> men can be better than than the traditional sort of bullying, than the catcalling uh -huh. uh, of women. If I remember that part of it, yeah. and um, you know, I think that it touched a nerve uh, for men, Diane. Not only because we may have done some of those things in our past. You know, and and I'm I'm guilty of these things too. I you know I didn't always uh, stand up to the bullies, and when I was in in uh, elementary and middle and high school, uh, I wasn't really an active bully. But you know, the, you want actually a kid who was uh, mistreated in our in my high school and in, in elementary school recently got in, involved in a, in a crime, and a bunch of uh, my friends from that time are realizing, gosh, we but we did not serve that kid well uh, when we when we didn't treat him well when, when we were young mm -hmm. and i think so there's a sense of guilt you know when when you look back and say gosh gosh i didn't kind of oppose that uh style of being a guy even if i didn't even if i was the leader of it right. so i think and that's the same is true with the way we treated women and and mm -hmm. often <clears throat> looked at them as more like notches in our belts rather than fully human beings uh in terms of how we were looking at relationships with them so to me that might explain some of the the the, the, mist, the the different perceptions and reactions we had to the ad as men and women. Well, yeah, it was an interesting thing for men, though. I think that what in the marketing classes we talk about, for me, I was like you. I'm like, yeah, I see the positive in it. But I, I think a lot of men felt attacked, like it was an attack on men in general. And, and I don't think that was necessarily their intention, obviously. And if you watched it, uh, on Twitter, it was it was trending with all the past examples of Gillette having um, women in scanty out you know clothed outfits mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. written across their rear ends and things like that. And they're like, "Hey, you guys are just as guilty." But I, I think that it's it's something that brought up a great discussion 
of you know what we expect from men and what's masculine and that's what you deal with in your book and you're calling mm-hmm. for a reinvention of masculinity which i find very fascinating i want to know what that means to you and why do we need to do that sure we see that this older uh conventional kind of masculinity that we end up calling confined masculinity is outdated unhealthy and and even dangerous um and so what we mean by uh, confined masculinity is one that uh is really preventing men from from having a a wide set of choices in their lives it limits them to a certain set of roles like the protector the provider the conqueror and it also uh, uh keeps them focused on certain ways of showing up in terms of being stoic uh, aggressive and, and dominant, also s- independent to the point of isolation. Uh, and the result is a, is a masculinity that, that doesn't really fit so well in the 21st century, uh, which is really calling for a different kind of ma- man at, at home, at work, and in the world. So the reinvention that we're uh, asking for and seeing actually emerging is what we call uh, a liberating masculinity. And that's one that it, it doesn't you know, deny the earlier uh, ways of being a, uh, a man, but it really builds on those other roles to say you can do more, mm-hmm. you can be more, like uh, say uh, a, a caring, a caregiver, like a nurse, uh, a, a sensitive lover, uh, an emotional, or excuse me, an environmental steward, um, as well as break into these areas that we have long been kind of walled off from, the emotional realm, being emotionally expressive and, and intelligent as well as kind of reflecting, having greater self-awareness, including about our privileges as men, uh, which is really vital as we, in the wake of uh, the Me Too movement, in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement, the killing of George Floyd, especially for us, us white men. So this, this kind of liberating masculinity really, we think, we think frees us to live fuller, uh, happier lives, not, and not just us men, but everyone around us. And you bring up some of the male kind of roles. You know, if you watch Meet the Parents, they make fun of him being a male nurse kind of thing. Just to show mm-hmm. and, and, and because that was the way the De Niro age group, that's what they thought of, you know, in a different way. And I think times are changing. And I, I know with my husband and my relationship, I mean, he's, he does all the cooking and the cleaning and I do the oh, finance, you know. <laughs> we kind of mm-hmm. flip-flopped if you look at it from the traditional perspective. Um, yeah, but yet he's still he's a physician and he has a very manly t- doctor job. Uh, it, 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 I don't think it's as cut and dry. I guess is what I'm saying. Is that what mm-hmm. you're saying? Well, that's certainly yeah. We see this these roles changing, and I, I, I need to hear your ex- experience. I know my mm-hmm. my own father did something similar to your husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he and my mom kind of flip flopped the sort of. Pr- breadwinner mm-hmm. homemaker roles about halfway through their uh relationship when my mom became more of a catholic educating uh, educator leader mm-hmm. and my dad became he always loved cooking so he became kind of the full-time cook and uh-huh. and, the, and the cleaner of the house too so there are there are changes but those archetypes right. are still there and they they still have a, a strong impact i think yeah you know ours kind of changed too when the kids grew up and went off to college i used to cook a lot much you know when they were around the house and then we, when they left he we flip-flopped for some reason and, and he just mm. took over for some of that stuff and cause my job is different in time um, requirements and we just you know it just worked out and i think that it's really important to to just recognize that there are different ways i, I think millennials are much more open 
um, than the, the my boomer generation to thinking of these just changing things. When you're mentioning barking bosses, um, I think of that as more the the Mad Men days, don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then you're you're right about that. There's evidence along those lines that we, we cite in the book that uh, there's a, a 538. A research site study of a couple of years ago that found that 60% of American men felt like the, that society puts pressure on men in a way that's unhealthy. And that was higher for younger men. So they're, they're, they're chafing against some of those earlier pressures. Uh, and, and as you point out, they're, they're not willing to kind of play the kind of corporate rat race uh, as, as much as, as older men like me. I'm, in, I'm 53 uh, and older where you're just supposed to pay your dues and, and you hope to get a, a, a bigger salary and a, a higher title later on. They're willing to like just have a life outside of work and, and t- treat that much more uh, uh, as a priority. You know, it, it is there. It's a tough time for men in some respects, but it, some of it has been long time coming for privilege and certain things that they've had. You know, and I, I've heard a lot of women lately say things like, oh, the poor white man, he's got it so tough kind of thing. You know what I mean? When the guy has mm-hmm. to deal with a, a situation where he can't um, express a certain thing. And there was a song the girl wrote on a TED Talk. I don't know if you saw it about all the things she can't do. Uh, she can't wear a ponytail or she can't go out at night. She can't leave her drink left alone. She can't, you know, and, but, but you guys get to have all this stuff. What do you say to the people who say, you know, you're an, a, a white guy, you, you have everything that women don't have. Why should we focus on male masculinity issues right now when women still have so many issues? It's a great question. And we were very sensitive about the idea of calling right. for a, a liberating masculinity because it's sort of in some ways co-ops the term, you know, women's liberation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what we, what, we realized uh, is that when men feel freer to, to take on a wider role, a set of roles, when they can feel freer to venture into the emotional realm, to, to uh, rediscover their curiosity, uh, it helps everybody. Mm-hmm. And, and men and women are, are freer when, when, when we help free men of, of some of these older views as well, is, is what we would say. Mentioned curiosity, so I do want to get into the five C's because you write about the five C's, and as you know, I focus on curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. And I, my work research the the four factors that inhibit curiosity, which are fear, assumptions, technology, and environment. And so I think curiosity is really important to develop, and I work on developing those things. And we kind of talked before uh, the show, and that's why I give you a little bit background, because you had asked a question about curiosity. Tell me about your your five C's and how curiosity plays into that. Sure. Yeah, I, I love that overlap, uh, Diane, with our work. And the, the, our five C's are curiosity, courage, compassion, connection, and commitment. And we put curiosity at the start because in some ways it all begins there. Are men willing to ask questions like, is this the best I can live? You know, because a lot of men, especially when they get the older older men in the 50s, 60s, 70s that have worked with my co-author have felt, they feel pretty empty in a lot of ways uh, with, with even if they've had conventional trappings of success, they don't have great relationships with their spouses or with their children. They don't feel a lot of meaning at work. Um, and so this question of what, what's really holding me back, you know, and, and are, are the ways that I've bought into social pressures, especially about how to be a man, uh, are those right? Mm-hmm. 
and and also then the more general sense of curiosity that I, I think you get at it, like asking about how things work or could there be a different way that it's so important in business and innovation. We are told as men to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah. And and that means you can't ask questions. You're supposed to be a, a know-it-all, not a learn-it-all. Uh-huh. You know, that's the term that you probably heard Satya Nadella of Microsoft, right. the CEO, has, has coined that or he uses that term, and I love it because it gets at how, you know, we've got to move away from thinking that the only way to be uh, smart is to already know. And increasingly, with the fast pace of, of the world, that's one of those 21st century traits, it's a faster, flatter, fairness-focused world, as I see it. And if we can't ask questions all the time, we're at a disadvantage. Right, right. And, and okay, so as you talk about that, that curiosity aspect also tied into uh, my latest book on perception, because I think perception is a combination of IQ, EQ, CQ for cultural quotient, and then CQ for mm. curiosity quotient. So mm. I, I love that um, you, you talked about how much that, that ties in. And, and some of the, what you were saying, the factors that hold people back from curiosity, um, when I say assumptions, that's that voice in your head that tells you you have to be the smartest guy in the room. You have to do yeah. that. You, know I mean? <laughs> you tell yourself. Totally. Right, and that'll limit you. And a lot of CEOs think they build curiosity in their co- their culture, but Francesca Gino, Harvard's review, um, you know, she's been on the show. We talked about how even though leaders think that they're encouraging it, uh, they're often not and from the employee's perception, from their perspective. So I'm glad you, you brought up curiosity um now what was the second one i started to write uh, sure. courage. courage courage is our mm-hmm. second one and it is very much tied to the first one because it takes courage to sort of start asking questions it right does. to mm-hmm. to revive the curiosity that we're all born with right we all of us as boys and and, and girls but you know boys too asked why is the sky blue why, how do airplanes fly you know and and Yet, can we have the kind of courage to, in a in a in a meeting, say, "I don't quite understand why we do this," <laughs> you know, like, right. to sort of pose those questions that actually might be vital to a better way uh, in public, um, uh, or to sort of say, "Do I really think I can't be more, you know, emotionally expressive with my own children, you know, so that I can, you know, cry if if they're sad or or, or cry with if uh, with tears of joy." Uh, so that courage piece is is standing up to some of these norms and you know we we have a, a great foundation of courage as men but there it tends to be physical courage you know going to save uh someone in a burning building or or financial courage i'm going to bet the farm on on a, on a new venture but when it comes to that emotional courage say or the the self-awareness the re- reflecting on our own uh traits our assumptions our, our you know going back to the privilege piece that's where we're calling for courage to sort of evolve for for men yeah, I think that's really important. And, and, and when I train people to develop uh, their fear levels, you know, that's why I think it was so important to measure like what was holding people back. Because once you mm. realize that it's it's fear that's holding people back, uh, then you can figure out what they're afraid of and then develop kind of a personal SWAT of those kind of issues to mm. overcome them. So I think mm-hmm. that that's really critical. So I, I want to get into the third one. What was the third one again? Um, compassion. Uh, so and compa- compassion and connection we see as the sort of core of this new masculinity, Diane. And so we put that in our, our subtitle, like the, the liberating power of compassion and connection. Right. Uh, and so the compassion piece is is this notion that you know we men have had compassion, of course, you know, but a lot of it has been unspoken. It's like been the the compassion that we we love our families and we're going to go out and work 
toil hard to be breadwinners in, in many cases for for for, for many years. Um, but we haven't always kind of identified this ex expressivity, the the sort of sharing that we care, saying we are going to be a, getting more attuned to the emotional needs of people around us. Um, because because it's we're supposed to be stoic, you know, we're supposed to not show emotion, uh, and it and it's also can be seen as feminine, which is uh, uh you know taboo for so many guys, and mm -hmm. we're relating to even that it's, we're going to show up as, as homosexuals, which is you know we're told to stay away, stay way clear of that when you when when you grow up. Now, all these things are changing, but that idea of being compassionate is is so vital to being happy as a man individually with your you know personal relationships, but also increasingly at work. Where we're, you know, the as you know, the the psychological safety piece is so important. Right. Research at Google and elsewhere, and if we, if you cannot be creating a space for people to be full human beings, where they can feel like they aren't going to be uh, mocked for their ideas and bringing their full selves, you're not going to create a, a powerful team and a powerful organization. Yeah, no, that's so critical. Um, and I, I, I think that it, you know, I've had to Amy Edmondson on the show where we talk mm. about uh, psychological safety. And, Great. And she's just really incredible. I've um, been fortunate to meet her at like Thinkers 50 and different things. And she's just has such a strong message that ties into what you're saying. And I, I totally agree with that. Um, now, number four, I want to go through your list because this is really fascinating. Sure. So connection is, connection. is that fourth, oh, okay. one. fourth one. Five then. Com it was commitment. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, then the commitment is kind of ties them all together. But uh, the connection piece for us kind of mm -hmm. goes back to that notion that men are supposed to be rugged individuals, mm -hmm. that we're supposed to be um, self-made men. And and I, I think that, that that is a kind of an American and a masculine myth of sorts, that we really aren't uh, dependent, interdependent on each other. And when we... Uh, you know, when we fail to see those connections and to nurture them, again, our life is diminished, and so is our our power in the world, uh, increasingly. So uh, we give the example. You know, it's a sad one in, for me because it's my own father. But uh, men, uh, old men, who as they get older, do not tend to nurture their friendships. You know, and and so there's a crisis of isolation and loneliness. And my father is unfortunately a case study. My mother died about six years ago, and he Sorry. has not. Thank you. Um, he hasn't, you know, rebuilt these relationships with childhood friends or other friends. He's got a, a couple good business uh, friends, but he's even told me like I, I, I somehow lost the art of friendship, uh, and, and it's tied in his case to sort of feeling not financially successful, um, and, and a sort of shame around that. Uh, and, and that's another. So his provider role has has reemerged as important now that my mother is gone, and who who was actually more than more the provider. Mm -hmm. So there's that's just on a personal level, but then if we think about the kinds of workplaces we're in now, they are ones with cross-functional teams. They're getting more uh, flat with distributed power uh, so that organizations can sense and respond to, to emerging threats and opportunities. That's a place where you can't be that, that barking boss to come back to it, where you're just used to giving orders. You've got to be available to have connections and relationships uh, and be able to be pers persuasive uh, as well as uh, able to willing to learn from folks in in, in your in your network of of, uh, of colleagues and even sometimes outside the organization. So, the sense of connection is important. And, and a last element of that is it needs to happen in this global level, because we're dealing with global challenges now that uh, a confined masculinity that only sees your uh, your circle of care, if you will, to be your family, yourself, maybe your community or your nation. That's not going to cut it when we have global warming pandemics these are things that 
require a global response and men who don't move forward to this liberating masculinity where they see a connectivity to everybody, they're going to be, again, sort of unable to solve the problems effectively. That's really important to, to note. And this is a crazy time. And you mentioned, you know, the relationships your father didn't really have, but you seem to have built a relationship with a co-author, right, Dr. Ed Adams. And I wanted to mm-hmm. ask you about him just because of his uh, connection to the American Psychological Association. I, I've had a lot of psychology-based um, professionals on the show, including Albert Bandura, the greatest <laughs> psychologist alive in 94 yeah. Wow. Um, he's uh, uh, was really inspirational to me. Um, is how did you build a relationship with uh, Dr. Adams? Through his wife. Oh. Uh, we we were both uh, co-author. We were both authors in the same publishing company that is one that does nurture connections really well. So a lot of publishing companies have a lot of authors and they don't know each other, but the our publishing company is called Barrett Kohler Publishers, mm-hmm. and it really uh, actively uh, creates an author community. And so I, we have an author retreat every year, uh, and there's a, a lot of other activities. And so I met Marilee Adams through that. Um, she also writes about uh, a topic similar to curiosity. She has a, a book called Change Your Questions, Change Your Life. So all about how you inquire into life uh, and at work. Mm-hmm. And so she knew that her... You know, right about the time the Gillette ad came out is when the American Psychological Association published a new set of guidelines for treatment of men and boys. And that's that also was a lightning rod of controversy because it was saying that this conventional, what we ended up calling confined masculinity, is associated with health problems like early uh, earlier deaths, uh, you know, heart, heart and other kinds of uh, stress issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's really an unhealthy version of masculinity. And that, again, was, you know, like the Gillette ad, creating a lot of backlash or, or, or criticism. And Ed, my co-author, he was the past president of the division focused on men and boys. So he was out there talking about this on the Michael Strahan show with, with Laura Ingraham from Fox yeah. News. Yeah. And um, so he that he was, you know, a public face of this. And it was a natural sort of uh, pairing for us to get together and combine these two windows into the new masculinity. That's so interesting. People always tell me I sound like her, and I don't hear it. <laughs> but I, I get that a lot with Laura Ingram. Um, okay. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, but the, the what you're talking about is it's just really important, I think, for people in general to build these relationships, to have, you know, the, the, some of this goes across male-female of, you know, just being who you are and just be liberated and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, mean, I, I mean, this could go into the he, she, they, discussion in so many different realms. Do you get a lot of those kinds of questions? Uh, In terms of sort of non-binary gender identities? We have a little bit, yes. And, uh, but I will say that our book is, is kind of targeted more toward that older generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Insofar as, you know, we are both middle-aged got white guys. Uh, We we acknowledge that and, and, and kind of say we're, our book is trying to help, especially uh, that, uh, group of men to sort of say, you know, we can be happier and we can be more successful and we can be creating a, a better environment for everyone around us. Um, but we definitely are, are mindful of, of these newer ways of thinking about sexuality and identity. Uh, we, we've got a section on uh, uh, sort of uh, groups of, of gay, and, gay men in San Francisco who are, are struggling with some of these questions of connection as well. Um, and uh, 
uh, as we th- as we talk about the book more and more, we you know we're definitely talking with younger younger folks, younger people, some of whom are kind of uh, challenging these traditional identifications. And I think we speak at the, in our kind of intro chapters about how that's that in itself is is one of the ways that liberating masculinity is important to to acknowledge that there can be more than one way, and that's one of those challenges of the confined mindset is thinking that you're, we are stuck in certain roles. It, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. I, and I agree. And I think that this is a really interesting um, look at just something that we, I don't get a lot of people talking about on the show. So I was really looking forward to this. And I think a lot of people want to know how to get your book, find, follow you. Is there some kind of information you'd like to share? Sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Ed Fraunheim. Um, we have a, a, a book website at uh, reinventingmasculinity.com so we will give away one of our chapters on confined masculinity there Um, and uh, yeah I'm also on LinkedIn uh, Ed Ed hyphen Fraunheim you can find me that way as well so yeah eager to connect with folks and and share more well thank you Ed this was really an interesting conversation it was really fun to chat and I love that we overlap in our interest and curiosity likewise Diane super conversation for me too oh thank you and we will be back right after this message Curiosity is a critical and direct link to improving motivation and communication-based issues that challenge organizations. By improving workers' curiosity, you can enhance employee engagement, emotional intelligence, innovation, productivity, and many other byproducts that come with that intrinsic but underutilized attribute. To find out more about how to improve curiosity, please go to curiositycode.com. I am here with Dr. Charles Red Jr., who is a nationally recognized Fortune 500 business leader, adjunct professor, speaker, and ministry founder with more than 30 years of exceptional performance in both business and uh, ministry. Dr. Charles has profound approach to developing successful leaders. He has worked with uh, transforming underperforming sales teams at Hershey, Pepsi, Frito-Lay, Coca-Cola, you know, a few names you might have heard of. And he's been super busy with retailers, Walmart, Kroger, Publix, uh, the list goes on and on. So it's so nice to have you here, Dr. Charles. It is uh, my pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me, for sure. Oh, I was looking forward to it. My uh, co-author in my next book, my good friend, Dr. Maya Zelihich, had great things to say about you, and so I was looking forward to this. Um, Just wanted to get a little background. I know you have a podcast. I know you speak. I know you do a lot of different things. What led to your uh, level of success? Just give me your backstory a little bit. You know, when I think back, my career has been with the Fortune 500 companies. I've had the opportunities to teach at the higher learning education at the college level. And I've been a participant in the church community as a teacher. But when you think in terms of my professional career, having worked for some great companies, as you mentioned, uh, it has been mainly uh, consisted of managing teams and developing teams, as well as getting involved with some key major customers and selling across the desk to a buyer. And in addition to that, where I found the most joy was having the opportunity to be a part of the uh, human resources in sales training and development. So I've had the opportunity to share with other executives and teaching them the concepts of salesmanship and consultative selling. And so that has been great. 
And so when you add it all up, I'm really passionate about adding life purpose through teaching and growing others. That's really what I enjoy doing and uncovering people's full potential through transformational leadership. And all in the midst of that, Diane, uh, going back to school uh, to receive my degree in undergraduate school uh, in business administration and communication, and then my master's in management and supervision. But I didn't stop there. I uh, went on and got a, an additional master's degree in religious studies, and then finally uh, attended Ashland Theological Seminary to receive my doctorate in um, transformational leadership. So I have a strong belief in continuing to learn and educate yourself as well as pouring into people to help them uncover their life purpose and to add value to society that they may live a life of significance and to leave a legacy for others to follow. Well, I, that's really inspirational, and I could see why uh, Maya would say, you know, that we would have a lot to chat about because <laughs> we actually do have quite a bit in common, and some of the stuff uh, I focus on are behavioral ways to reach your full potential in sales development and HR and, and all the things that you're talking about is right up my alley, and I, I really love to talk about some of this stuff because I think it ties into just the human performance to me a lot of it is about behaviors you know how much we hear that people are hired for their knowledge and fired for their behaviors and uh i i, I know that there's a lot to uh sales professionals and you were talking about cons uh, selling uh, hr sales and training and development some of the stuff that you do is that what led uh to your book don't stop now did you focus on tell me a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it and who's it meant for i guess i want to yes you know when i think about the book don't stop it it ties in the uh, professional experience as well as my personal experience they go hand in hand mm -hmm. and really the message is really about uh, no matter where you're at on life's journey don't stop. Don't give up on your dreams and on your passion for life because there's something of value that you have to offer. It is a book about finding really meaning and and finding a way to move along this personal journey. And it's about listening to what God has to say as well as what the world is telling you and how to answer that call. And, and so when, when I wrote the book, it really talks about a lot of the things that life events that I experienced. And they weren't all rosy and they weren't all pretty. But one of my mentors in leadership, John Maxwell, he talked about in his book, Failing Forward. And that really resonated with me because in the book, I talk about experiences of failing. But then through life uh, and how we get through life, it's what we learn from those experiences. I took the expression of living and learning, which kind of you just go along life and as life treats you, you just deal with it. But uh, John Maxwell talks about turning that phrase around and looking at it from a perspective of learning and then living versus living and learning. And so I wrote the book to kind of get the things up and out of me that I failed but then what I've learned from those failures and how to apply that and learn and live and to make myself better and then to go and make others better. So I reach up for the helpers and then I begun, became a helper. And so on the journey of Don't Stop Now is that I don't think in terms of retiring. I think in terms of following your passion all the way to the end of life. 
and there's something about following your passion. It's 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 about really coming to the point of being useful and being able to make some difference in not only in your own life but in others as well. And so I truly believe that every person has a talent that will help him or her for a better mankind. But in this, you have something, I have something, we all have something of value and what a contribution we can make to make the world and society even a better place. So the book is about how do we grow ourselves? How do we overcome failing? How do we uncover the thing that is within us and to become better at what we do and then turn around and help someone else receive that message and become better as well. Well, you, that you'd covered a lot there, and I think it's really important because you know it actually ties into the work that Maya and I did, um, mm -hmm. our books on perception and the value of understanding the impact of how IQ, uh, EQ, uh, CQ for curiosity quotient, CQ for cultural quotient, all come together to this process of how we we evaluate, we predict, you know, we interpret, and we come to these conclusions. And when you were talking about uncovering what's within us, not only do we have to do that for what's within us, you know, it helps us if we could understand from other people's uh, perspective, as you mentioned, looking at it from a different perspective, uh, failing mm -hmm. forward instead of failing as a bad thing. And, and I, I think perception is such a, an incredible thing to discuss because to really put yourself in somebody else's shoes you, got, you have to develop your sense of curiosity and your questioning to develop the sense of empathy for somebody else. Uh, do you deal with that kind of thing in your training courses to develop emotional intelligence and um, just behavioral issues in general? Yes, I think the key is being uh, transparent with people and your experiences and realizing that we can always reach up to learn more because there are people that are smarter than us that have been there, done that. But at the same time, from a horizontal perspective, there are folks that are that can accompany us alongside of us along the journey to support and to hold us accountable and then reaching back. Uh, to bring those that are uh, inquiring and wanting to learn more, bring them up. So there's always this area of I can be a participant in being a person who is experienced and giving back, or I could be a person who is learning along the way, or I can reach back and bring somebody else along the journey. In the work that I do in corporate America, even with the Hershey Company now, is that you know I lead a sales team and. The goal is obviously to drive for results, and we we measure that through uh, sales increases and profit and market share. But what's more important on the other side of that is how are we making others around us better and that we all reach the destination of success together, leaving no one behind. And that is the approach that I think is, is, is important in transformational leadership as well as in servitude leadership, that we all arrive to consensus and we all celebrate together and achieve together and make everyone better along the way. Well, I mean, that's really inspirational. I know you've learned a lot from John Maxwell, but you really have quite an impressive, you mentioned Hershey, but you know, I mentioned some of the other companies that you've helped. How did you get to that level where you uh, were able to work with such large organizations and uh, help them with their sales teams in other areas? 
You know, the key is to love what you do. Uh, one of the things that I've heard been said is that either you get to go to work, you, either you get to go or you got to go to work. And <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think the uh -huh. difference is uh, when you get to go is something about the passion that you don't need an alarm clock to get up. You're not watching time. You are anticipating what's the next thing to do. And so I found early on in my career that I enjoy uh, leading and coaching and inspiring people. And that became uh, the, um, the message for me to deliver to others, to get other folks inspired and to motivate them to get unstuck in life and to realize their full potential. And so when I think about working with these great companies, uh, the people, I've learned a lot from a lot of people. And uh, that has been uh, really the key to my success uh, to actually be a, a, a continuous learner. And that's what I still am today. That's why all this going back to school and, and continuously yeah. learning, you never can stop growing. And so I feel that that has benefited me by getting exposed to the different organizations. But the one thing that's all in common in all of the companies that I work for are the great people and, and the great leadership. You know, working for Coca-Cola, who hasn't heard of them? Uh, PepsiCo, uh, as well as the Hershey Company, been around 126 years. And when I think about all of that, uh, and what I've been able to contribute, whether it's leading a team or managing an account or or training other executives in, in sales, uh, it's just been a fantastic run. And I don't plan to stop. I plan to continue on along the journey until I just, uh, as they say, blaze away versus wilting away. <laughs> well, sales is a fun thing to deal with. You know, I worked decades in sales and it's changed so much. It, I've noticed, I mean, it went a lot away uh, in a lot uh, more of a focus towards team sales than individual mm -hmm. sales. Have you seen that? Yes, yeah, so early on in my career, you know, here's the manual, go after it, you know, mm -hmm. be the best you could be. Um, but we're in an environment now, at least I can say I am, is that um, I may have the answers to getting to the top of the hill, but uh, it is my expectation to uh, share those answers with others and bring them along with me. Now, the competition is still there because I'm still going to say to that individual that here's the answers, here's how you can get there, but I'm going to beat you to the top, but we're not going to leave anybody behind. That's the difference when I think back before it was about me versus us and we. And so even our compensation and our bonus structures and things of that nature is tied back to we in a one Hershey uh, perspective than versus uh, how individuals did. And so I found that to be uh, more appealing because now what we hear is more diverse uh, ideals and um, strategies and tactics when we involve a lot of people into the discussion and we come up with a consensus to deliver on that action. And it has been um, successful. I mean, we're having one of our best years ever in spite of the times we live in where the pandemic has uh, taken hold of these, uh, the world, so to speak. But the fact is, is that people are gravitating to our products and we have people on the front line that are making the difference and uh, that just doesn't happen it happens because of teamwork it happens because of a clear vision it happens because of empathy and working with people and being flexible 
and I think that's the way of leadership going forward that is making us all better and everyone having some contribution of value that will make the difference. It is a different time. I noticed a lot of changes uh, when I was in pharmaceutical sales of mm -hmm. how they would just add more people and more people to the teams just got bigger and bigger before I left. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, thinking of you and I both teach is, you know, associate faculty, different universities and things like that. Yeah. And I, I think of some of the team activities where you have people to, you know, try to mimic what we see in the working world. And you'll always have students uh, on the teams who really don't do as much as others, and I found a lot of that when I was a, a stu uh, student as well. I'd end up doing a lot of the work for the other team members, but in the working world, if you have a weak link like that on a team, I'm curious how you go about helping people uh, work with that situation. I mean, not all people put in the same amount of effort is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yes, and I, I can relate to what you said. You know, uh -huh. a group project is always someone or one or two people really taking the horn and right. going after it, right. uh, where there's others, uh, what I call wallflowers, not onto the dance floor, but observing and getting credit for the for the uh, you know the the A in the class, so to speak, right. and so it is a uh, it, it's on the coach and the leaders, and, and I can speak to my group that I lead, uh, is that we still have to hold people accountable, even though the vision is clear, uh, the expectations are set, and then the touch points are at least once every four weeks, uh, and then um, you always know where you stand and where the gap lies, where you can improve. And when you still have someone who is still not measuring up and not doing what all they could do to be successful, then it is uh, very important that we identify the strengths that they do have and we can steer them in a direction that's going to be a win-win for the company and for sale. And in some cases, people just uh, come to the conclusion that this is the work is not for them and they self-select out. But we do everything possible to identify the strength. I kind of relate it to a, uh, a baseball team. You know, not everybody can play infield. Not everybody's an outfielder or a pitcher or a catcher. But it's, a, it's very important that the manager and the coach identifies those strengths and put them in the best places where they can succeed. And when that happens, uh, you can have a, a team. Someone said it this way, players win games, but team win championships. And that's the goal of the coach and the leader. Another analogy would be just standing on top of the box of an orchestra and you have the string section, you got the horn section, you got all these different sections. And so you're trying to get all that music to come together. And when it's not sounding right, you stop and you have what you call a huddle meeting and you discuss what's working, what's not working and how you make those adjustments. So that's still very critical to the success of leadership and getting everyone involved and tapping into what it is that they do well and setting them up for success. Those tough conversations, Diane, we do have them where people, uh, we help them see where they're at in terms of their contribution and what they are lacking. We try to supply um, training. You know, I always say training we can always provide, but the passion, we can't wake you up in the morning and get yourself out there and get involved. That's something that you're going to have to bring each and every day. 
but the training we can. So it, it comes down to that first, getting the training, getting the development there. And then if there's no passion, then it's just about the person. I call it the valley of decision. They're in that place where they're at a crossroad and we help them make the correct decision going forward. Well, you bring up some good points because, you know, when I talk about motivation and drive and some of that, you know, a lot of that is is struck by uh, improved through uh, curiosity and developing curiosity. That's what I deal with with organizations. And as you're talking about some of these strengths and, um, you know, I had Tom Rath on my show, the Strengths Finders guy, and, you know, it, it's interesting to focus on strengths uh, and, you know, developing that. And even when I talk to him, he doesn't say avoid developing weaknesses. It's just, you know, he's focusing on strengths in, in general. And, and I can remember a conversation with Olin Odekoven, who was on my show, who's this leader of Peregrine, who said he would hire a person if he saw something great in them and then design a job around what he found out that they could do later. Uh, it, it's it's what kind of tying into what you're saying, you know, find out what people are really great at doing and then let them, you know, go in that direction. But do, is, is there some, to develop people, do we, do we just focus on their strengths? Do we try to develop them in areas maybe they're uncomfortable? Is there a value in that? I think there's a value because once you tap into someone's passion or their strength, they gain more confidence, the energy level, the engagement level, all of these things improve because it's something they're very good at. And because they're good at it, then it opens up for an appetite for them to learn some things that they don't necessarily do well. And that's important because now they're taking a leap uh, to grow themselves. And um, that's the key. But the initial uh, starting point is when you have people engaged in something they really enjoy, then they're open to learning more. We found that in, in many cases. Well, and you know, I think when it comes to um, what one person can do and another can't, I remember talking to Rich Carlgard, who also was on the show about this. Uh, he, he had written about teams and how uh, just the, you know, the Steve Jobs, uh, Steve Wozniak combination, how sometimes you have one person who complements the other and then you get this synergistic uh, you know, result. And I, mm -hmm. I know when mm -hmm. I work with Maya, for example, she and I were working on this perception work and we were looking at it from a global perspective and she's super international and she's got all these um, strengths that I don't have. And uh, I, I think that when you have like a CEO, COO combination, do you, how do you align, do you work with that alignment in the upper levels? Or are you staying more in the sales teams? I'm just curious how, what levels in the leader, uh, the whole development that you deal with? I, I think you can apply it at a higher level because mm -hmm. then the, the CFO, the CEO, they're building a cast of people that brings diversity of experiences. Now they're going to help support that leader by uh, providing even more insights and more support in that leader's strength. And when the leader feels not threatened, that they feel that, you know, um, no one's out to take my job, they give more responsibility and trust 
to those individuals to give them some additional learnings. I think once the leader feels that they're being respected, that their um, the vision is being upheld by the cast that they've uh, hired to be a part of their cabinet, then you are able to bring in some more insights. I tell folks that come onto my team, I says, look, you know, you have great experience, but here's the uh, here's the playbook. Here's the playbook. I want you to learn these plays. And then I want you to, after you've dem demonstrated that you could run these plays, I want to really hear from you as to how we can even do it better. But the first phase of it is to gain trust and to gain a clarity of what it is that we're trying to accomplish as a whole. And once you are able to grasp that, we really want to get your input and your value as to how we can do it better. When I came to the Hershey organization some 13 years ago, I didn't say, well, we do it this way over at Coke and we do it that way over at Frito-Lay. Uh, I simply came in with the intent of understanding, as I would use the expression of learning all I can and then processing it and distributing it out later as to what it is that I can add of value to the whole team. And I have been able to bring in some things that were uh, beneficial, that were taken from other experiences and now have been incorporated by uh, the company I work for now. So I think people will be more open to learn and open to give when there's more of a trust factor there and more of a, a common uh, buy-in on what it is that we're trying to achieve. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I, and I was looking at your speech topics. You cover a lot of things uh, that I think are really important in terms of transformational leadership and brand success and different things like that. But I also noticed, in addition to your speeches, uh, you have your own podcast as well, and uh, I want to know a little bit about Dr. Charles Speaks. What is that podcast about? And yes. Oh, that's something that um, each week I do a 15-minute uh, pre-recorded podcast that is uh, it's a message of inspiration. It's a ah. message tied, tied around leadership. It's a message to get your week started off with energy and to motivate you to take one day at a time, but to do something and to do it well and to make a difference in the environment that you work, particularly during this time where we're uh, a lot of folks are working at home, they're right. missing the direct contact, uh, but there is something that you can do to uh, look within yourself, uh, to uh, examine what it is that you do well, what it is that you could do better, and how can you make that a contribution to your surroundings in your community or in or your job, wherever that might be. So I'm excited each week to get other folks excited about <laughs> the week itself. And that's what it is. So yeah. I've got about 120 something out there. You can take your pick and listen to any one of them. And I guarantee you, you'll walk away feeling energized. I love that. Well, I, I'm already energized just from speaking with you this morning, and I think a lot of people are going to want to follow you and learn more about your book and everything that you do. How can they do that? Well, my book is available certainly at Amazon and certainly at Barnes & Noble, and you just type in uh, Dr. Charles or Don't Stop Now. It's there. Uh, and um, I'm excited about the book. I'm getting some good feedback from people who have read it already, and they are motivated to don't give up on their dreams and to continue on. 
the podcast you can uh, reach uh, you can connect with me on LinkedIn if you like as well as uh, looking up at DR Charles Red you'll find a lot of those uh, social media whether it be LinkedIn or Instagram and so forth but yeah that's how you can get a hold of me and certainly I'm available to uh, speak uh, to organizations. Uh, I have had some success already working with, particularly doing this virtual meeting time. Uh, I've been able to speak to some juniors and seniors in the business administration uh, field and talk to them about leadership principles. And the, the professors have allowed me to come in and uh, share uh, some insights from the corporate perspective and then and some perspective on career development. You'll be amazed how many students graduate from college and they're still trying to yeah. figure it out. Uh, and they, they're looking for jobs versus careers. And I talk about the difference because really uh, when we hire people, we were looking at the potential of at least two to three moves down the road. And when you're thinking from a strategic perspective versus I just need to get a job to pay back my school loans, uh, right. that, that doesn't that doesn't get you through the door, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I hear you. And I think that this is really important. Everything that you work on is is really uh, right up my alley. I could see how you would be super successful. And thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Charles. This was so much fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. And we will be back right after this message. Do you know someone who might benefit from taking the Curiosity Code Index Assessment? The CCI is the first and only assessment that determines the factors that inhibit curiosity. It's simple. If you recommend the assessment to someone else, you can receive 20% of the purchase price that they pay when they take the CCI through the link provided by you. To obtain the link and become an affiliate, please go to drdianehamilton.com forward slash affiliate. Well, I'd really like to thank both Ed and Dr. Charles for being my guests today. We get so many great guests on this show. If you've missed any past episodes, please go to drdianehamilton.com. You can uh, listen to them there. You can read them there. And you can also find out all the radio stations and podcast areas where we uh, air if you want to listen to them live. But uh, really enjoyed today's episode and looking forward to the next episode of Take the Lead Radio. You've been listening to Take the Lead with Dr. Diane Hamilton on C-Suite Radio.